Hey, everybody. Welcome to Exit Point. This time we've got Jeff Shapiro joining us to talk about his wingsuit progression and opening solo wingsuit jumps in the mountains. Lo, uh, what do you think about this guest? Yeah, Jeff is a longtime adventure buddy and friend. For those people that don't know who he is, uh, he's a professional climber. He's a professional paraglider pilot. He was a world-class hang glider competitor and uh, all around fantastic guy. I'm really looking forward to this interview. He's also one of the most handsome gentlemen you'll ever meet. So without further ado, let's get him on the track. Thank you for joining us, Jeff. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing really good. Yeah, it's an honor to be here, you guys. I, not only is it uh, cool to have an opportunity to see both of you and get to have a good conversation, but um, listening to the, the first several episodes that you guys have done and um, listening and learning from the people that you've interviewed has been, uh, has been really rewarding and uh, to be included on that list so far, is, it's, it's an honor for sure. Thanks, man. I mean, that's really what's motivating us. And, uh, you know, not only is it an awesome excuse to have really cool conversations with people like you and catch up with old friends, but also meeting new people and, uh, yeah, sharing the love. So let's jump right into it. Um, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, your history in Montana, because you have like this own, your own little history of American wingsuit base jumping. Um, so can you, can we talk a little bit about those times, um, back in the day when you were opening <laughs> some, some cliffs in, in your backyard and, and, you know, some of the experiences you had around that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> it was an interesting time then. Um, I, you know, I was like most of us, uh, super inspired by what people were doing in, um, the art of base jumping and just the evolution of what people realized they were capable of was really inspiring. Um, you know, when I started, it wasn't because I was, you know, interested in traditional base jumping as much as just super fascinated with different forms of human flight coming from hang gliding and, um, you know, a bit of paragliding at that point. Uh, and just being fascinated with flight my whole life, having the, um, the, just the visual of seeing some footage from people flying with their arms off of big cliffs in the mountains and, and in ways that it wasn't just the flying that was inspiring, being in the mountains was inspiring. Um, and realizing that a lot of those places that I had grown up, uh, you know, a lifetime of climbing and, and certainly flying over them, uh, presented an opportunity to perhaps experience that in the backyard, um, led me on that path, you know? And, uh, so from the very beginning, the idea of learning how to base jump was always with the, uh, I don't know if I call it a goal, but, with the idea of being able to wingsuit base jump in the mountains and, and just explore a different kind of human flight. And, um, Montana, although sporty in a lot of ways and not ideal, um, offered that opportunity legally. And so that was kind of a special times like, you know, guys like Sean Leary, um, Charlie, uh, Kerlankis and, and a few other wingsuit base jumpers in the States, um, Scotty Bob, 
people were sort of hungry for these legal base jumps and it was still during a time where there was quite a bit of secrecy and um you know the passing on the torch and then the knowledge was was still one-on-one -on -one mentorship there wasn't a whole lot in the way of i mean jimmy and marta were, were offering courses and there were a few other courses um theirs being the benchmark of course but but it wasn't um there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to explore things like wingsuit base jumping in the mountains without mentors and um so yeah uh, when i got started um the uh, the natural progression for me was to, well, it was, it's probably driven more by just obs obsession. But, um, as soon as I sort of learned, uh, the, the prerequisites of how to, you know, at that time, sort of like, um, in my own mind, at least safely fly a wingsuit in the mountains, I started just going, um, and exploring a lot of the cliffs in the backyard and, um, you know, quietly, uh, and solo, out right? I mean, yeah, you were yeah, quiet, but different... solo. Yeah, yeah. And um, <clears throat> I mean, there's. A, I would invite friends, certainly, to come and explore some of the cliffs and jump some of the cliffs that um, I had been jumping. But but there's a lot of, um, it's, it's super special, as most of, you know, anybody who has done it knows, to be able to go and do a wingsuit jump in the mountains by yourself is super special because it's all, it requires a, a very personal motivation. There's nobody to talk you in or out of it. There's nobody to get you out of bed in the morning. There's no accountability or commitment other than to yourself and, and doing it for those reasons always felt pretty true to me. So, um, you know, going into the mountains and hiking for four hours in the dark to get up to some perch and being up there by yourself with no one around to, to, you know, to bounce ideas off or to discuss conditions. It, required a level of self-reliance that, um, just, I don't know, it was, it was definitely a, uh, a source of some pretty profound growth for me and something that I really enjoyed, uh, doing. I just like really, really, really enjoyed being out there by myself. And, and also like, you know, the perspective that you gain from experiencing different things, di different sides of, of two poles, you know, when I'm there with friends, it made me appreciate that time with those people. Uh, and on the flip side, it made me appreciate the times that I was there by myself, you know, but, um, but yeah, pretty exciting to be able to like do the work, you know, go find uh, a potential landing zone and to run the numbers and to see if there was a glide that was, um, viable in terms of having some margin and then seeing if, you know, the poor, resolution from Google Earth showed a potential exit and then to go out and explore the landing zone with my dog and then to, to hike and to try and find a way through the cliff bands and some, you know, required some bouldering and, and um, you know, weaving your way through the mountains to try and find uh, a, a way to rappel to a particular perch. And then at that point, there wasn't a whole lot. I mean, people were, I was using a a um, rangefinder, but we weren't really using lasers. It was still like the classic rock drop, you know, and um, dropping rocks and trying to figure out where um, gave me the safest potential for a good flight to the landing zone. And then um, having all of those things, all of that time, all of that sort of energy equal a uh, jump. The, the first time, you, you know, I would jump off an exit and fly it and land in the LZ was... Um, no, certainly special. I mean, yeah.
So I'm curious, did you start out as a solo bass jumper or uh, did you have mentors on the way to becoming a solo bass jumper? And if so, who, who were they? No, yeah, <clears throat> I definitely had people um, guiding me along the way and helping. And, you know, as was pretty prevalent, I think at that time, most of the people who were interested in bass jumping came from uh, all walks of life and had different skill sets. So, you know, a lot of my uh, mentors were people who I could in turn maybe give a little bit something back um, through the through other arts, you know, like I would trade, um, you know, time. Let's on name and shame. Help. Let's name and shame uh, here. Let's, Classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so when when I when I started learning, I went to where most a lot of people at that in that era went. Um, I went to Lodi, and oh the yeah, jump tickets. Yeah, the jump tickets bucks. are cheap, and the loads were loose. Yeah, and um, you know. I met a lot of amazing people there and learned, obviously learned from, from everybody. Um, but my main mentors, when I, when I first got involved, the people who got me involved was, um, was a guy, uh, named Ren Heschel and absolutely. Ren, uh, yeah, legend. Yeah, absolutely. He, um, he, I'll never forget the first day he brought a wingsuit into my house. You know, it was like this Superman cape that I didn't even, you know, it was like just holding it was pretty empowering. It was pretty probably wild. had team ill vision, uh, branding it on it too, didn't it? <laughs> and indeed it did. Indeed awesome. it did. Yeah. And, um, you know, he, but he, Ren was more, it wasn't just that he was, uh, a wingsuit base jumper. He had some pretty strong ideals. Um, some pretty, he was kind of a purist and, uh, I, that really left an impression on me and, um, he really felt like it jumping needed to be done for the right reasons. And I think that, that mentality as being one of the main um, ideas or, uh, you know, like main sort of elements of his ethos to pass on other than just technical jump stuff was definitely left an impression. And I'm, I'm grateful to him uh, to this day for it. And then Dean Potter, uh, I had a conversation with him. He's, he was definitely a motivating factor in me getting involved, but my main mentor um, after jumping at Lodi like a job, you know, just trying to like get the necessary experience and not skip any steps or cut any corners, you know, cause it's like, I'll never forget, um, having that, that sort of fortune cookie saying, it's like, you know, it doesn't have to take a long time, but you can't skip any steps, you know? And that I feel like is pretty common for most high risk uh, activities. You just have to do the work. And, um, so I, I jumped a lot um, in a fairly short amount of time trying to not just get numbers, but get the necessary experience. And like I said, I, I learned from a lot of people, but, um, once I kind of was getting closer or at those, those accepted numbers, I met Jordan Kilgore and Jordan is, um, you know, he is a ninja and, uh, yet pretty quiet and pretty humble. And we hit it off pretty early in, in, uh, sort of my jump related life. And, um, he offered, a, a lot of mentorship along the way was there for my first bridge jumps and um my did did my first cliff jump with with Jordan did my first building with Jordan he's been um kind of there from the beginning and it's been cool over the years to sort of come full circle and do some wingsuit jumping together and and as of late do a bunch of paragliding together so like in you know the base jumping community is so, so common to not just have a mentor but to have gained one of like the best friends of my life you know um but I would say Jordan was probably my main mentor. 
So going back to Ren, uh, and this is a really interesting point that you brought up, the, the right reasons. Um, what are the right reasons for you, and have they changed over the years? Um, I mean, yeah, they have. I think reasons are uh, pretty dynamic. And, um, you know, in, in other words, on some days, um, the reasons for jumping are different than other days, and, and I, I feel like that's okay. Um, the right reasons that I was describing before, though, I feel like um, he, the way sort of he promoted it and and certainly the way I feel about it is <clears throat> that you should be jumping if it calls to you loudly and um, inspires you in a way that makes the uh, the work that it takes to earn the right to do it and the risk involved worth it um, in other words like jumping because I want to jump and not because I want to be a jumper um, I think that sometimes the idea of base jumping or the idea of flying a wingsuit or, or seeing some of the footage of people doing it, um, it sort of tricks people into, or whatever, it, it might trick me into thinking that, um, that, that that's something that I want. But, you know, when it comes to getting out of bed in the morning at whatever, 4.30 and hiking into the mountains in the dark, like I explained earlier, those motivations have to come from somewhere deeper than just wanting to be that, you know? Um, and I, I also think that if you, uh, I'll, I'll quote somebody that I have a lot of respect for. So there's an old, old, old Masters of Stone video where, um, where uh, it was said that if, if, if you're soloing for someone to stand up and take notice, then you've had an awful, and you blow it, you know, then you've had an awful joke played on you. And I, I feel like... Um, if I was to base jump and uh, be doing it because it was connected to personal identity and not because it was something that I truly like, it improved my life, brought something wonderful to my life, and something was to happen, then um, then I would have had an awful joke played on me, or I would have played it on myself, I guess. Yeah, you're really opening the door for massive amounts of regret there. If uh, yeah, you're doing it for yeah. the latter reason. Yeah, yeah, and and you know. Um, I think that the, the art of base jumping is all about truth, right? Like, I mean, lie to whoever, but don't lie to yourself, you know? And, um, for me that tend tends to be sort of a litmus for whether or not I should be jumping. Um, you know, I'm not trying to necessarily do anything other than, um, grow as a person and experience something incredible and see something beautiful. And at the end of the day, be, uh, changed from the experience, you know, in, in the better, or, I mean, really it's kind of like a, a I try and look at, and I think base jumping is, has given this, I try and look at life from sort of a Stoics point of view where everything is good if you look at it from the right angle, cause it all leads to personal growth, you know, but, um, but I think doing it for the right reasons is, is definitely the cornerstone uh, for me. It's been the cornerstone of, of um, making good decisions in the mountains. That's super interesting. You know, I, I personally, because I'm thinking back to when you came, one of the trips that you came to Chamonix and, um, you know, I remember I wasn't, Maybe it was because of a recent fatality or I had some uh, personal stuff going on at that time. But uh, I remember being super excited for you and Pat to come out and how like I really wanted to jump with you guys. And then when you came, I really wasn't feeling it. 
I wasn't feeling like I wanted to base jump. And uh, I remember that being a real pivotal moment for me because it, it allowed me to have space to, you know, identify myself as a base jumper, but also just enjoy my friends who come into town on a social aspect and not necessarily get caught up in the, the chasing jumps, you know, that a lot of people do when they come, you know, when they, when they travel to the Alps. And, you know, not necessarily saying that you guys had that sort of energy, but it was like, yeah, I need to be checking in with myself no matter what the situation is or who comes to town or or what. It's got to be about me because at the end of the day, when we leave that cliff, we're by ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I remember that trip and, and, you know, talking about mentors, I mean, both of you guys have been mentors too, right? I, I have so much respect for both of you and I remember that trip vividly. That was a very um, pivotal trip for me and in some ways... It was pivotal, pivotal because of your decision. Um, it, that was right after. So I remember that was a pretty rough few years, and um, Stanley had passed away. And then a week later, um, Dan and Ludo and uh, Brian oh, okay. went. And thanks and for the context we, we, there. Yeah, we had discussed that while we were there. I remember sitting at the table with Pat and you talking about those accidents and how we felt about them and, and, um, how we obviously celebrated the presence of those guys in our lives and what we learned from them. Um, but I remember that, you know, you weren't really feeling it. We did a couple of jumps together and, and, um, some really good ones and some really memorable ones, but I'll tell you, that was my, that was my first time jumping the Agui de Midi. And that, then it was, um, we didn't jump off the deck, right? We were wrapping down to that little nose of rock that sticks out. Right. And I'll never forget you coming up there with us and like selflessly, um, just your positive energy and your big smile. And I was wrapping off the railing and, um, just, I remember thinking to myself that, um, that that was, that was pure friendship. You know, that, that was what it was about. It wasn't about the jump and the jump was obviously pretty memorable. I mean, anytime you can, <laughs> jump off the midi and fly down to Chamonix is like pretty life-changing but um but I remember both you and Pat were exactly the uh people that I needed to be around at that time in my jumping related life and and in just life in general and um I think that base jumping has the opportunity to offer that I think uh the the experience that we go through it's funny I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, obviously when we're jumping, we never consider it to be this like cheating death thing. Cause it's, you know, obviously we wouldn't be like, I don't know about you guys. I'm pretty sure that you'd feel the same way I do. I've never, ever not once jumped and hoped for the best. I mean, it's like <laughs> something that you believe is going to be successful and that you've earned the right to do and that you've analyzed and, and looked at, you know, conditions and conditions within yourself and and your equipment and all the things that are required to have a jump be successful before committing to do so you know and um but at the same time i think that you live or at least for me i live uh life so profoundly in the present when i jump um and like matt said in one of the previous podcasts you know, we go through our lives not really having a perspective on the end point, you know, like nobody really thinks about their own demise or, or the end of their life because we're so, um, you know, intent on being present and paying attention to the life that we're living currently. So 
even if you do think about your mortality um, in, in a healthy way, um, you're still not focused on the end ever, right? But when you jump, you do kind of have this um, this thought process or this acceptance that if you don't, you know, once you've committed to the jump, if you don't pull your parachute, I mean, you're, you're essentially saving your, your life. You're required to, right? And so even if you don't consider it as like a near-death experience, essentially you're kind of having that, right? And so after you land and you've had this successful, incredible experience where, you know, for me, at least the, um, pr- the level of presence is so profound in a wingsuit jump that, um, the part of my brain that generates memories doesn't really work anymore. So like, I, I do remember the jumps, but I, um, and I, and I do feel like really, um, aware, but I, I definitely, um, couldn't tell you how many seconds have passed, you know, it's like, um, it's sort of an infinite life lived in one jump. Right. And then when I land, um, having had that, um, that experience of, of seeing the endpoint and then recognizing it, it gives you the perspective of being for me, it gives me the perspective of being super grateful for the life that I get to continue living. And that feeling, it's not, it's hard to put it into words. I, I just, you know, I'm trying to do the best I can with it, but it's a, it's a feeling that, um, ironically is probably murdered by words, but I, I, that feeling is, is lasting. And, um, I always try and find my way back to that feeling, that level of gratitude and perhaps the humility that's gained from a jump is one that makes those friendships and all of the other elements of base jumping, the community that we jump in, um, the lessons learned from, from every jump and from, um, facing our own mortality and, and how, um, how much we have as opposed to how much I wish I had, you know, those things, they impact my life in a way that, that makes everything richer. If that makes sense. How does transcendence sound for a word to describe that? Yeah. I mean, certainly, um, it, it, I, I would be lying if I said that, um, flying in the mountains, um, you know, I, I would think flying in the mountains definitely transcends normal consciousness. I mean, for me, it does. Like, <laughs> I can't really. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could you could probably get there. I remember talking to uh, Neil Amundsen about this. Um, a couple of things. One is um, if if you needed to go on a vision quest or do something to change your perspective from whatever juvenile to adult or from, you know, one existence to the next you would have to base jump exactly one time to do that, you know? So, um, that's pretty interesting. And then, um, you know, I think that, um, I think that the idea that, um, that our normal consciousness, um, well, let me have a crack at this for a second because it's okay. what I'm seeing here is you talked about stoicism early, right? Earlier, and uh, there's the uh, uh, memento morti, right, where we're reminded of our own mortality, and uh, it isn't necessarily that we're saying fuck it and just hoping for the best on each jump, but the act of having to actively save our own life and being in a community of people that, uh, you know, not everyone is successful, 
will remind us of our own mortality and give us presence of, of, of an, our own lives. And what it's been kind of interesting interviewing some of these people lately on our podcast here is that people have near-death experiences or they have, you know, what could potentially be life-changing accidents and then make zero changes in their lives because they've already come to the understanding that life is fleeting and we're here to take advantage of what we've got, our experience. And um, whereas, you know, you meet people who don't have these kind of experiences and, you know, maybe they'll get cancer or maybe they will get into a, a near fatality car accident and then all of a sudden they, their life changes so drastically because they come to this crazy realization where us within our community, we've learned those lessons. Yeah, well, and what I was going to say is, is um, like, I remember Neil and I were talking about the fact that you could get that this, this state of consciousness that you're talking about, um, and the reason why maybe there isn't a change after uh, having um, an experience like a base jump in the mountains, um, is that, you know, if you were to meditate for a lifetime, you know, I think that you could probably achieve it or get, get to that, that point um, of sort of a lack of attachment or whatever. But it's so much more difficult to get there with a quiet mind than it is. All we have to do is, is jump and we sort of find that, you know, um, sometimes I str actually struggle with that, whether or not it's like almost cheating. Um, you know, cause when we, <laughs> I mean, you know how it is, right. You, you learn these wheels. lessons. Exactly. Exactly. And, and also just, um, the, it's like this amazing, uh, feeling of enlightenment that's sort of slammed into your forehead on every jump. Um, but really I think that, um, it ends up being kind of fleeting. Like I, I wondered why, okay, if I learned all these lessons or, you know, I can learn them to the point of being conscious about them when I'm not doing them, why do I have to continue to do them? Like, why do I have to repeat, repeat it? And it's because it's fleeting, right? Like you have this incredible sort of feeling and, you know, I, I think I might've described it before. Like I'd go on a jump by myself. Right. And, um, I'd walk in and to, to be totally honest, um, I would get out of the car before light, you know, in some dark parking lot in Montana and walk into bear country and lion country and be like, you know, wandering through the woods with a stash bag by myself through the snow and, you know, be intimidated just by being in the, in the woods in the dark. I mean, you know, I've spent my whole life in the mountains, right. But you're you know, like hiking like pretty far back there. And, then you post holing up a snowy ridge on some exposed peak and you get to this, you know, this rappel that you sort of left a fixed rope for. And I like would, you know, wrap to this little tiny thing and, and look off and there's nobody out there. And it's just kind of the beauty, right? That you're operating in an arena where no one's watching and no one really cares. And then you put on your wingsuit and, um, you know, no one to tell you yes or no, but yourself. And you have this incredible jump and you land and everything's quiet, right? Everything's exactly the same as it would be whether you were there or not. And, and I'm walking out of that canyon with my stash bag on and I'm passing people walking their dogs first thing in the morning up the canyon. And they're like, hey, you know, how, like, how was your morning? It's like, oh yeah, morning's good, right? And you go and you get in your car and you, you drive to the gas station and, and, you know, there's some woman there and she's like, you know, is this all? And yeah, thanks. And how was your morning? And it's like, oh, it's pretty goddamn good, you know? And she's like, okay, well, have a good day. And you get back to your house at 10 in the morning and your whole life has changed, right? Like the entire world is different. 
but but then routine kind of kicks back in and things start to normalize and um and i think that the I, i gather that the work it takes to achieve that level of consciousness with a quiet mind might be uh, one that ends up being more lasting. I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? I'm, all I'm right, interested. Let me try this one on. Yeah. So first of all, I totally disagree with you that it is cheating. Let's imagine for a moment, like somebody <laughs> spending, you know, a decade on a mountainside meditating. Well, okay. They, they might be meditating for 10 years and then all of a sudden get one moment of like transcendent experience that they've been striving for. How long did you take to get to the moment that it was possible for you to wingsuit base jump off of that mountain? I would argue probably more than 10 years. Yeah, well, and I think that, um, I think you're right. I mean, I think that uh, earning the right, it's like, it's so easy to think that earning the right to do a wingsuit base jump includes numbers like 200 skydives and 200, you know, wingsuit skydives and blah, 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 all that, the accepted things. But but really, I think that um, state of consciousness includes a lifetime of experience, right? So for me, the, um, I don't feel like I, I would have had the same experience. Um, like in other words, I wouldn't have felt qualified to go and explore new exits in Montana. Um, if I hadn't had a a background in climbing or in, um, all those years of, of flying hang gliders and, um, even, even just based on, a um, the element of curiosity, you know, just, I I wouldn't have that same level of curiosity without those previous experiences. So, so yeah, in that way, you're right. And I didn't mean cheating. Like it's a cheap, (laughs) it's like the cheap in the experience. That's not what I meant. I just mean, it's just like a, it's a, you know, the, it's a pretty easy way to throw yourself into the deep end of the ocean. Um, in true enough, but it doesn't work otherwise. Like if you, if you just throw yourself into it, I can expect that because you've put yourself in such an extreme position, you're going to have a transcendent experience out of it. Like that's just unequivocally wrong. Like if you're terrified during that experience, then your mind doesn't have the capacity to rise above itself. It's going to be, it's going to be terrified the entire time, you know? And so that's going to put you back into your body and not going to be like that rewarding experience that you end up having at the end where you're grateful for everything and, you know, you're feeling the flow of the world. You know, it, it requires that you did all of that work year in, year out to become the person that you were to stand on that mountainside so confident that you were ready to do that thing. Yeah, well, you're totally oh. sorry, Jeff. Let me let me just jump in because I'd like to defend the, the, the meditation with training wheels concept because... And I'm a little bit out of my wheelhouse here because, uh, but for the experience that I've had meditating in a traditional sense where you're sitting on a cushion and, you know, you're clearing your mind, like in Zen for my particular experience where you're clearing your mind, counting breaths, man, you're battling the minutiae. You know, like your ideas are coming in and you're trying to clear your mind. You're, you're trying to not grip onto these ideas and let them carry off where... You know, and this is extremely difficult. And I think that, you know, even just coming to 10 breaths without, you know, grasping onto an idea is extremely difficult. Whereas on a base jump, you know, and I hear people say, oh, this is my form of meditation. Yeah, great. But you're flooded with endochemicals, uh, you know, um, 
endorphins and anandamines and all of these feel-good chemicals that come rushing into you and your mind is so completely overwhelmed with stimulus that all you can do is focus you're put into this you know sense of focus with no other choice really uh and that's that's the only and i don't you know, I'm not pulling any value away from either one of those, but to call it meditation, it is a sense of meditation with enhancements. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. I would agree, though, that like um, the toughest part for me in traditional meditation is getting. I mean, all suffering comes from inner dialogue, right? Like, it's just it's so difficult to just get the voice in my head to shut the fuck up for a little bit, right? <laughs> and when you jump off of a cliff, um, whether it's a traditional base jump or a wingsuit jump or whatever, the things that we do to be real present, flying different things or going surfing or whatever, um, each of those things is a way of sort of um, dulling the noise. And, you know, also there was, um, I think that there's, for me at least, um, and I don't know if this is unique to me or I'm sure it's not, but a large uh, attractor for base jumping for me um, was this exploration thing you know like the what what attracted me as a as a young kid to climbing was always the idea of going and and doing first ascents not to put my name on a route but to um go and do something that i wasn't sure if i could do you know there's so many um certainties and and the world today just feels so sterile right it's just so like safe and um having an adventure that is totally uncertain is pretty rare. And so to go do a new route means that you're, you're not sure what, what's above you or what's around the next corner. And the only way um, to really discover whether or not you're ready for something is to go out and try it. And so base jumping represented that for me as well. Like it's probably the reason why um, the large majority of my base jumping, um, you know, I, I loved going on trips to Europe and seeing my good friends there and, and doing lots of jumps, you know, each and every day and, and discovering all these amazing places that people were generous enough to bring me or to show me or to, to tell me about. But really the most magic moments in my base jumping related experience was going out into the backcountry and trying to figure out those, those, um, the answers to those questions and exploring, uh, new places and finding, I mean, certainly there are lots of cliffs that are jumpable and um that's not you know it's like sometimes that's not enough right you got to figure out all of the elements to make sure that there's margins that the that that's going to allow this jump to be acceptable so the exploration of finding new jumps enabled me to really delve headfirst into a lot of the questions as to whether or not I was ready for it. So it's not just the jump, right? It's like, am I ready for this jump? Does it match my skill set, my level of experience? Um, is it something that I really want to do? Um, and do I want to do it for the right reasons? Um, and then just the beauty of being in the wilderness, you know, being out in a place that a lot of times I would hike up to an exit and um, for one reason or another, uh, and I know Lowe used to use this, I don't know if you still do, but it's kind of like the three strike rule, right? If you if three things or more feel kind of out of place, it's maybe better to just walk down and, um, you know, 
my one of the fondest sayings that I have is is that jumping is worth it, but one jump's never worth it, right? So if I wasn't feeling it for that particular day, just hiking to the exit anyways, because sometimes I change my mind and leave leave that open, but sometimes I wouldn't and I would sit up on the exit and I would still be able to appreciate the beauty of that place and like the effort that it took to get there. And uh, when I hiked back down, the difference at the end of the day from the days that I got to fly and the days that I didn't get to fly, you know, in some ways are profound, but in some ways there's not much difference, right? You still got up and you still um, grew as a person, uh, you know, and did what it took to go out and and step into that sort of unknown realm and answer some questions and, and you know, on some particular days, the answer was no, you know, but I, I still felt like I grew as a person that, that to me was a pretty big attraction to base jumping. Kind of a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was thinking about, um, my own experience uh, on doing solos because it's so much different. Uh, you know, when I go for solos, it feels like almost like going to the track. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like uh, I drive to the bottom of the cliff and, you know, it could be between two and a half to three hour hike. And it's usually someplace where I've been before. It's always someplace where I've been before. And uh, there isn't this sense of potential doubt. Uh, there isn't these enormous questions because, you know, I've, I've, uh, I know the weather. I know that, you know, I, I, on a solo, it's almost always a hundred percent go kind of conditions. And I'm trying to put myself into your, into your position where you're hiking by yourself to an exit point and you're measuring it by yourself. And while I do have two other friends that have opened exit points solo and, uh, maybe more that they just haven't told me about, it's uh that sounds like a profound experience for sure. And, uh, I've got uh, something to jump in on that one for, and maybe this will bring us back a little bit to the transcendence. Um, one thing that Jeff has, uh, given me through uh, like our interactions is a, a way of objectively assessing an, ob an object and the readiness to do it. And it's, uh, beyond the three strikes rule. It was the, um, write, writing your own obituary, you know, writing the, uh, the news report, that would uh, be written um, had the worst thing happened. And then seeing if that, or like listening to it and hearing like whether it sounds good or not. Can you uh, get into that a little bit, Jeff? I think I read that somewhere, maybe in the book of bass or something. I can't remember, but it was, I, I remember it as a concept that stuck with me. Um, and I, I just think it's just a way or a way of articulating how to check in and um, self-reflect in a helpful way before you actually do the thing, you know, just like, in other words, if I was to, um, you know, drive all night to Moab and, uh, get there at six in the morning and, uh, have a shot of tequila for breakfast and my buddies wanted to go and do a jump. And I went up there and I said, okay, well, I'm tired and I'm got a little bit of a buzz and I jump and I died. If I was to read that, uh, has an obituary, I would think, God, what a fucking idiot, you know? And yet, um, if I was to arrive in Moab, get really good rest, um, and have a quiet mind and feel mentally and physically prepared and, um, go through my normal sort of 
checklists, checking in with conditions in myself and my gear to make sure that I felt like all arrows pointed towards yes and had that jump and something happened. Well, you know, that's part of the risk of, of, you know, what we do. But the reality for me is, is that I need to do everything that I can on every single jump being that it's a, a pretty important decision to commit or not commit to a jump to make sure that, um, that I've done everything that I can to be prepared for that. So, um, I just use that, you know, that was something that I read and, and I use it. I used to use it a lot. Absolutely. I use that one all the time too. It's a excellent mental exercise to instill extreme self-awareness. Yeah. So let's get into some other strategies and tactics for solo, uh, jumping and, Let's put a caveat on this that uh, you were not just an air sports person that got into wingsuit base jumping. Uh, you were a professional climber and mountaineer. Um, so maybe you can give us some tips and tricks from that realm and how you brought all of that experience into uh, wingsuit base jumping and doing it solo. Uh, <clears throat> well, I mean, where I was jumping um, most of the time, you know, by myself, it re definitely required being comfortable in that environment and, and often required things like, um, short repels, uh, with the obvious ability to get yourself out of there. I mean, sometimes, you know, you wrap to a ledge and by the time you got your suit on or whatever, something just didn't feel right or seem right or was right. So it'd be important to be able to get yourself out of that situation. Um, so having some of those climbing related skills gave at least gave me the confidence that I knew that, you know, obviously I wouldn't get myself into something that I couldn't get myself out of. Um, I think, uh, I think that weather knowing the micromet for the particular area that you're in has, um, for me, it's always been a source of, um, confidence. If I, can look out at the air mass and feel like I know what's going on, not only, um, at the exit, but at the landing zone that, uh, that, that confidence allows me to feel like I'm making a good decision, um, one way or the other. Can you give us and, any you know, inroads into understanding micrometeorology, maybe some uh, advice on where to start and what to look for? I mean, I, there's lots of boring books to read, but I think that it's worth it. I think that if you're doing something as serious as base jumping, it really pays, uh, to, you know, to be a student and to try and, um, learn as much as you can. And, and sometimes, you know, certainly my knowledge of Micromet came from a lot of days just standing on launches around the world, talking with other pilots. So it's definitely something that I would encourage jumpers to talk about when you're on exits, talk, talk to each other about conditions and what you think is happening. Um, you know, in places like Europe, obviously the conditions that you're getting at exit, uh, are not going to be necessarily the same that you're going to be getting on the ground. I mean, I think low, we, I remember doing a jump together one time where it was like zero wind at the exit. And by the time we punched out towards the LZ, I mean, we were landing in third, like backwards, right. In third, 30 mile an hour Valley wind. So, um, knowing what's happening and what you're, what you're getting yourself into is, is certainly, um, I would re I would call a, a requirement, you know, Absolutely. Um, and just, um, you know, being as observant as possible. Um, when I walk up to the exit, uh, whether it's a long hike or a short hike, I'm always paying attention. Um, 
I'm watching birds fly and circle. You can see a lot uh, of what the air mass is doing through the way a bird is flying, um, what they're, you know, how fast their downwind leg is in relation to their upwind leg, um, whether or not they're getting rocked around by turbulence or, you know, if the, if there's a bunch of convective, um, mixing happening, how it's affecting the bird's flight. Um, and you know, how it changes when they're close to the cliff. And then I'm also looking at the trees, uh, which side of the trees are, are moving and which side, um, are still, whether or not the trees in the bottom of the Canyon are moving the same as they are on the rim of the Canyon. Uh, certainly the direction, the velocity, the, the cycles, um, whether or not it's convectively driven or frontally driven, um, if there's ambient wind, you know, the topography and whether or not, um, it's going to be, um, anabatic or catabatic in, in the landing zone and what you can expect the, the wind direction and the conditions to do to your, to your exit performance. Um, if you're wearing a suit or not, you know, like if, as an example, if I was jumping without a suit, um, I was always taught by my mentors that wind in your face is a no-go, you know, and some people don't think that. And my way is not the way it's just a way. And it's the way that I feel like has, um, worked for me to keep me alive. Um, you know, because, uh, flying downwind means you're going to cover a lot more ground, uh, through that air mass before the, the wing reacts. Um, having wind in my face means that if I have a 180, it's going to be consequential. Whereas if I have wind in my face wearing a suit, um, and it is hitting that cliff face and creating some, some, um, obstructive lift, you know, a little bit of ridge lift, then that could increase my, my performance, my exit performance. So, uh, definitely being aware of the micromet and how it affects the jump that you're doing in, um, you know, the, the style of jumping that you, that you're doing, I think is, um, it's super important and worth studying. Well, uh, we want to get back into your, uh, solo jumping, but before we leave this topic and we don't want you to have to teach an entire course on Micromet, uh, but do you have any resources that you'd recommend either books or courses or people that people can, uh, search out so that they can, uh, improve their understanding of it? Yeah. I mean, Understanding the Sky by Dennis Pagan is a pretty good book. It's kind of hard to get through. Um, it's geared towards sport aviation, uh, hang gliding and paragliding in particular. There's a bunch of sailplane books too. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, in the end, right, we're, <clears throat> we're paying attention to weather flow, um, information provided by NOAA and other websites that gives us models and predictions, but really going and putting your finger in the wind and looking and feeling, um, is what's going to give you the, the most visceral sort of, uh, connectability to, to what it is that's going to end up affecting you in the long run. Um, like one of you guys, both you guys, had you know, I was just going to say that, um, it might be difficult for you because I think you started at 17 in your hang gliding journey and, you know, you were flying uh, deformable wings and with paragliders, uh, shortly after that. Uh, I know for me later, you know, I think it's now it's been five years, uh, and speed wings before that, that, uh, you know, floating, you know, floating around in the sky, on a par- under a paraglider has given me such an incredible understanding and respect for the ever evolving flow of the air mass through the mountains like nothing else you know like i have dennis pagan's book you know i i i look at it almost daily but until 
you know, I've spent full days and afternoons with my paraglider. I just, it, it never looked three-dimensional as it does now. Uh, yeah, in a, par- in a paraglider or hang glider, you're definitely a little boat in a big ocean. And you don't, I think that if, um, you know, it's, it's really easy to feel like we're only in the air mass for such a short amount of time. Even in a wingsuit, you're talking about, I mean, some of the biggest jumps in the world are you're, you're still only flying the wingsuit for two and a half to three and a half minutes, right? Um, so <clears throat> the amount of time that you're exposing yourself to the air mass is so much less than in a paraglider. It's easy to sort of justify uh, that as, you know, an excuse to be able to accept a, um, maybe a, a smaller window, but I, I, I don't think that it serves you. I would, it, I, I don't feel like it would serve me if I was to make that decision. So having an understanding and then truly understanding that what we don't want to do, or what, I guess what I'm trying to do as a base jumper is remove the chance, right? You're trying to remove the variables. And for me, jumping in a lull, um, is kind of like if you get away with it 99 out of 100 times, it, you're really being positively reinforced for a bad decision because one accident in 100 is still unacceptable when it means changing or ending your life, you know? So <clears throat> I think that um, understanding the air mass, understanding Micromet, and understanding how it has potential to affect your jumping, your heading performance, your flight performance, and uh, your ability to land your canopy in said LZ is super important. And in Montana, our exits were, I mean, there's definitely some sporty exits there for sure, but the landing zones are for real. You know, you don't, it's like, it's not Europe. Like you don't, there's no green fields to land in. In Montana, you're landing in a, in a two car garage driveway surrounded by rocks, Creek and trees. And if you don't land there, it's going to, it might, it's going to be consequential for sure. You know? Um, and I mean, I've seen really, really, really good jumpers, tetherball trees and, you know, I (laughs) helped carry a buddy out with a broken leg. Yeah. (laughs) So it's definitely real there. And, and I remember feeling like that was kind of, um, an important part was that, that previous experience, you know, 25 years flying hang gliders and paragliders and whatever at that, at that stage, at least, um, it's a little more now, but that was, um, was influential not so much i mean certainly it was in the um exit and in the flight but in flying the canopy and trying to land it um you know yeah it was it was important to know that you were going to be able to do that because um i mean a base canopy as you guys know is like it's kind of a truck right it doesn't fly so well relative to like getting yourself out of trouble if it's blowing much harder than you think or if it's um if there's rotor you know mechanical turbulence. So uh, speaking of people tetherballing around trees and uh, going back to what we had said earlier about like once you put something on the map, everyone in the community wants a piece of it. Um, How did you approach the conversations about people wanting to come out and jump the things that you had pioneered? I was just really honest with people. I mean, really like it's not my spot or my, you know, I don't have any ownership of it. And, um, and, and yet, um, it was important to me that nobody, it, it, Montana's definitely not the place to like learn or to take the place of, of more appropriate spots for people who, um, would do better to travel. Uh, so yeah, people would reach out and want to come up and, um, I would just tell them exactly what, 
they were getting themselves into. And luckily for me, I had a couple of good friends come up um, who were uh, mature and honest. And uh, I took them to jumps knowing that they could, that they were qualified, that they could handle it. And they chose uh, wisely to not jump um, because the, you know, like a couple of times because the hike was a little bit much, you know, it was like um, the approach might have been pretty long and pretty steep. And maybe the exposure in the, the slabs or the bouldering to get to the exit was a bit much. It's not like um, just a simple walk up to the exit. And so they would get there and be kind of frizzle fried or, um, you know, just be too tired um, because you got, you know, to get the right conditions there, you got to get up pretty early or the jump just didn't feel right. You know, like there are a couple of jumps where the exits are like, you know, sort of Provence style, the, the train you're jumping over isn't very steep and, and it's, you know, four and a half second rock drop or something. So I, I don't know the numbers cause, um, cause you're old. Like I said, I, yeah, cause I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. And so, um, but, but, uh, I think word might've gotten out a little bit, um, too, that it was, it's not really, uh, it's not straightforward there. So that helped a little bit. And the people that I did have come and jump there with me that I have some of the best memories of my, um, of my life with, uh, you know, I, I think that they also kind of got the word out that it was, it was, um, reasonably serious, but I would just tell people, you know, I would just say, well, this is what you're getting yourself into. Do you feel like you're ready for that? And, um, you know, without glorifying it or, uh, or, m you know, making it anything other than exactly what it is. I, I mean, I think it's so easy to say, well, you know, I can explain a, an exit in two different ways, right? One makes it really enticing and one makes it like super deathifying. <laughs> but if you, if you just explain it exactly how it is, um, then, the emotional response that you get from the person thinking about jumping it is going to be uniquely theirs. And then, uh, as it should be, they can make a decision that is uniquely theirs, you know? Totally. Yeah. If you give them the pieces of like, this is exactly what you have to do and here are all the numbers. And then they look at you like, well, is that something I should do? Then you're yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you can't fake it, right? Like that's right. the thing about base jumping that's so special is, is either you do it or you do not do it. And, and that is super personal. It's such a personal decision. And then, um, yeah, the, the other thing is, is I, I mean, there are, there are definitely X, I mean, and I, I'm not even sure I could explain totally why, cause there's lots of different reasons for it, but there are definitely exits that I jumped and opened, um, behind the house in Montana that I, st I still haven't told anybody about. And it's not, not necessarily because I want to keep it for myself, but kind of in the same sense as a first ascent, it's like, I want people to have the ability to find that experience for themselves. And they, the jumps were so special that if somebody wanted to f see what, like, if they, if they, obviously it's, it's not a secret, right? You can find it. I did. So if, if they really want that experience, then I want them to have the same experience that I had and not, um, I, I look at it more as a gift than as, um, something I'm keeping from anybody because in the end they're going to get the same experience and, you know, they might see a, a sling and a fixed rope or, you know, maybe some evidence that I left up there just to like, you know, whatever, just to like <laughs> leave something. But, um, they'll, they'll think they'll be opening this super sick jump and they'll look down and see the name maybe Jeffrey Shapiro <laughs> no 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 yeah no, nothing like that but but it, it is um 
it, it is, I think, a unique experience to have. And I think it, it's cool that there's still, um, you know, and who really, who cares if I jumped it, you know, like yeah. somebody else is still going to have that, that raw experience, which for me was so beneficial that I'm, I, I wanted to leave it for someone else to have. Yeah. If they go through the same process as you, then arguably they could get the same reward out of it, whether oh, you jumped sure. it or not. Totally. Well, and yeah, and, and, and I think you summed it up really what. great there. I mean, I think at the at the very base level, base jumping is like that. It's like a, you know an Easter egg hunt, a giant Easter egg hunt with a, an you know amazing chocolate egg at the end, and uh, we get to go out and find it, which is uh, super rewarding. And when it's when when you don't th- know if anyone else has jumped in or you don't know it's even possible, it just adds a little bit of. S- magic to the whole experience for sure yeah well and it goes back to just those first lessons from ren you know it's like like a building if if you leave trace of yourself at the build on the on the building on a building jump then you lost the game like you don't win the game unless you leave no trace like nobody knows that you were there right and um i think in especially in the age of social media like having a few things i mean for me having a few things that i've done that are that are special to me uniquely that um uh that aren't shared uh i I don't know to me that feels like winning and like uh, my buddy blake who is also was also a mentor and blake milford he's he's og um he used to tell me uh occasionally and i I always i always remembered it as the best advice if if you know if you're going base jumping and the two camera, your two most important cameras that you're born with aren't enough, then you shouldn't be there. You know, <laughs> in other words, like leave the GoPros at, at home. And certainly my, spe- the most special jumps that I've ever done that I had no, can- just my memory, you know? And, and, um, I think that again, that sort of plays into the part of, uh, it's personal, but why are, why are you doing it? You know? And, um, in my younger years, I would, I would be lying if I said that those things weren't driven by, um, you know, some, some ego and, and, you know, whatever, but now it's like, it's just, it just adds something wonderful to my life. And that that's enough. Do you have a moment that you can remember where you felt conflicted, uh, you know, as in the realm of social media where maybe you wanted to get some footy or you wanted to share some content, you know, maybe you had some sponsors, that were relying on you or, or you, you know, had put a lot invested, you know, whether financially, physically, whatever, is there a, a memory and maybe it doesn't have to be specific to base jumping, but climbing, paragliding, hand gliding. Do you have any of those memories? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, the lit the litmus test for me these days is if my daughter would be proud of it i'd do it you know and the social media thing is so hard because um you know there's so much like comparison is is kind of gnarly right like going through social media and seeing all these highlights that people post um it's hard for younger people to not compare their lives and have that affect them uh, positively or negatively whatever but to contribute to that has been a bit of a conflict for me um but at the same time i do enjoy sharing and i would be lying if i said i wasn't inspired by seeing like what my you know all my friends around the world are doing so um i think that there's some genuine good in being able to share the things that are meaningful in your life um i did a 
BBC film. Um, those guys were doing a nature specials, like a adding adventure to science and education one hour special about the Rockies. And um, I jumped a wingsuit and it was really cool because they didn't want any um, like train flying. They wanted no, you know, close tree cliffs flyby, you know, none of that. All they wanted was sort of to capture the beauty of jumping off a cliff and flying with your arms. And, um, and I thought that was pretty refreshing, pretty cool, you know? Um, so we, we did that and, and I thought that that was, that felt good to share that, um, similar to the Yosemite thing with PBS where, you know, you got to fly off Glacier Point. I think sharing is, um, it's in, it's cool. It's inspiring. I was inspired by it. I still am. Um, but I think that it's transparent too, right? So if you're sharing something because you want people to think a certain thing, if it's connected again to personal identity, then that's kind of transparent and it feels maybe a little bit, um, for me, I, and I can only speak for myself, of course, but that feels a little bit gross, you know? Whereas if you're like truly psyched on a flight and it made you really happy and um, you know, you enjoyed the company that you had sharing that with other people and, and having that inspire others to go do the thing that calls to them. If that's wingsuit base jumping or f throwing a Frisbee or whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, I think that that's totally cool. So, I mean, I, I think it's just one of those things I just try to look in the mirror and, uh, really honestly ask myself why it is that I want to share it. And if it's, um, if, if that truth is acceptable to me, then I share it. And if it's not, then I, I don't, I try and learn from, from not only what I, what I gained from the thing, but also from that, that question, you know, answering that question within myself. That's a great answer. So back to answering questions within ourselves. Um, I want to dive back into mindset when it comes to being a solo jumper in the mountains. I think that that is a rarity. Um, and, uh, do you have anything to share with us on how your mindset, uh, kept your jumping sustainable for so many years? Um, well, I mean, I think, um, a driving factor for me was currency. Currency is such a, an important thing when it comes to jumping. Um, my passion for it was like in overdrive. So wanting to stay current coincided with just wanting to jump all the time. And, you know, the night before I would see the conditions, um, to be acceptable and whether there was snow on the ground or not getting up in the morning was kind of a no brainer. Cause you don't know unless you go. And, um, and then I really enjoyed, like I mentioned before, that process of walking into the mountains and going through those stages of, um, answering the question as to whether or not I should or shouldn't and being, uh, having that answer be super honest because, I'm really only having a conversation with myself, you know, um, and whether I jump or not, no one really cares. I mean, it's not like I'm trying to, um, fulfill, you know, an expectation from anybody. Um, and it also allowed me to be pretty comfortable with my own expectations in myself. And as long as I felt like those decisions were good, um, then I felt like I was living up, um, to my own expectations and, uh, also, uh, building a foundation of better decisions in the future, you know, so going jumping by myself. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love jumping with friends. I mean, like I said that you wouldn't know the light without the dark. So, um, that polar opposite of going up there and sharing that experience with some of the most unique humans on the planet was, is certainly the highlights of my base jumping related life. Um, 
and and even if they didn't jump, you know, like I said, I, I will never forget that smile and high five wrapping off that railing in, on the Guy de Midi that that trip. Um, or nor will I, will I forget all the the rest of the flights with Pat, the rest of that trip, and and our conversations about losing our friends and and all of that equaled an, an incredible experience for me. But um, the solo jumps, like I, I think that just being true to myself or if anybody's interested in doing solo jumping, uh, being true to yourself, I think that there's so much, there's as much benefit in that as there is in, in jumping. So I've got a, another question that seems to be up for debate, um, in our community. It has to do with when you jump back into, uh, jumping with people, uh, from doing solos. And uh, it, it really is like a question of what you're responsible for. When you're out there by yourself, you know, you are responsible 100% for yourself and that's it. And it seems to be a debate whether when you go out with a group, you become responsible for those people uh, or if they are completely on your own and you're just doing something in proximity to one another. Uh, what's your opinion on this? Well, okay. Yeah, this is a deep one and it's pretty heavy because, um, yeah, it's interesting that you asked this. I'm kind of glad that you did because, um, here's my truth. My truth is, is that, uh, in a small amount of time, like so many of us between 2013, I think I started jumping around 2011. I think my first wingsuit base jumps were at the beginning of 2012 or something between 2013. So pretty early in my jumping experience to 2016, uh, I think, we were losing jumpers at a, like a staggering, uh, level, you know, and it was so bad that, um, that sometimes it was multiple jumpers a week and for months on end. And, um, for me, I tried to, uh, analyze every accident. I tried to be strong for friends and certainly, um, discuss the loss and try and get through that purgatory of grief to the point where I could celebrate that person's influence on my life and, um, continue jumping with a full heart, you know? And, um, in reality, what was happening, I think on a subconscious level was that I started after, um, after a point, and this is just me, you know, obviously each of us has a different way of dealing with it. But for me, what I started doing was, um, without knowing it is, emotionally divesting from other people. I just started like, um, my, my bullshit tolerance went to exactly zero. Um, you know, and, uh, I mean, I, I already had kind of a sensitive bullshit meter, but it was like, I, I was finding myself pretty short with people and like not really wanting to give too much or commit too much, um, to what you're talking about, this jumping partnership where you are, earning and giving trust in a way that's unique to jumping. And, um, because, because the outcome is real, right? Like when someone goes in, um, and we've all experienced that where someone has gone in uh, with us or close to us or dealt with the aftermath, um, it's, you know, they're gone, right? It's, it's those of us that have to untwist them and pull them out of the rocks and carry them out of the mountains that are uh, forever affected. And, um, for me, it felt like, uh, over time, the solo jumps became this, uh, ability to not have that as a factor, what you're talking about, this, this like, um, desire to give that level of trust or to uh, accept that level of responsibility, I guess, as, as, as you put it, 
Um, and so I started jumping with people that I trusted on a level that was like, you know, hard to explain. Like there were certain people that I just felt like, um, you know, I, in other words, I chose who I was jumping with very, very, very carefully. And, um, and you know, that it, in some ways was important, um, sort of self-protection mechanism and, and others, it was kind of a bummer because I got to, you know, I, I kind of missed out on spending time with people that I'm sure would have had an incredible impact on my life in a, in a positive way. Um, but you know, as the truth is for a lot of us, some of the people that left the world too early were people that I never considered. They were, they were those people, the people that I trusted most, you know? Um, so, uh, it's a, I think that the responsibility that we have, um, for our friends and our fellow jumpers is, um, for, for me, and I can only speak for myself. For me, it's, it's, it's pretty profound. Like, I feel like if I go jumping with somebody, uh, unquestionably when I jump, the only person I'm paying attention to is me. Right. But before and after, um, I mean, I would bleed my last drop for the people that I'm jumping with and make sure to do everything in my power to, to aid their experience to be positive and successful. Um, and that is a lot of, um, that's a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure. Do I think that it's your responsibility? No, I think self-responsibility, self-reliance and accountability, um, that's all those are those are subjects that you need to like we all need to come to a reckoning with when we decide to be jumpers right is um we need to accept the fact that our decisions are going to uh, be consequential not just to us but to everybody around us and act accordingly so if um a jump doesn't feel right and i'm with other people it's not just not right because i might um make a mistake or i'm not physically or, or mentally prepared for it. It's also because I have thought about the people that are there with me and I make sure that my decision, um, takes into account that if I do make a mistake, that that's going to affect more than just me. And, um, and, and to be fair, I think that way when I'm solo too, you know, cause, um, obviously there are people, you know, I'm a father and a husband and, um, a son and a brother. And I, I want to make sure that those people are taken into account relative to my decisions too. So, um, I, I would say that the responsibility is, it lies within each of us. You know, like you said, I'm not really responsible for someone else, but I feel responsible to someone else. If that makes any sense. Totally. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think in a way it speaks to me in, in some of the experiences that I've had and you're for sure giving when you open up that window or you open up your bubble, your, your safe bubble to be more inclusive and to be more social and base jumping, you know, generally for me, the briefing becomes, you know, pretty profound. Uh, I'm trying to share as much information as I can to help them make their own decisions as well educated as possible. And, uh, you know, and of course, what you were talking about also uh, brought up some some memories, too, of jumping with Ellen because, uh, you know, she's my wife and uh, 
that sort of distraction is while I'm not responsible for her, the consequences of her actions are deeply profound on my sense of happiness and my life journey and everything. So, uh, you know, even at times, honestly, like I love jumping with her, but there was a big portion where I was like, okay, no more technical exit points with Ellen because it's just too damn distracting. And then I think, and then I think that, you know, the friendships just sort of like wherever they fell on the closeness spectrum, I titrated the exit point intensity to be, you know, to represent that. Yeah. And I, I doubt that that, I mean, it sounds like it would be intertwined, but I doubt that that has any lack or a connection to a lack of confidence in Ellen, right? Like Zero. obviously, yeah, obviously she's yeah ninja. But what I'm saying is, is that oftentimes I was on exits with people who, um, who I would trust implicitly, but if I was distracted, then I would make that choice for myself quietly that I couldn't jump, but I didn't want it to affect them, you know? So it's kind of one of those things. It's like, how much do you say? And this is another one of these arguments that, uh, Matt, I think that you might've been sort of referring to is, um, when, when do you say something and when do you keep your mouth shut? You know, and that is, man, that's a hard one because it's like everything in life. It's not black and white. It's all gray. I I remember a a really interesting experience I had, um, that I'd like to share. And I hope that it's not insensitive to, um, the friends and family of this person, but, um, and I certain, I won't say names, but most, most people who know her will, will know. Um, I was on the prine with two guys that I was mentoring and I was helping them do their first base jumps. They had gone through their, um, requisites and, um, had had a relationship with Marty over at Asylum and, and I was at the bridge with them, helping them out. And Chuma was there with a, a large group that he was doing an FJC with. And there was a group from Canada that were, were, they were coming back up, um, from a trip to Vegas and two of them were experienced and two of them were not. And one was trying to keep up and she was on a rented rig and she walked, we were all standing at the rail and she walked right by us and without saying anything, kind of sort of nudged her way through the crowd, uh, threw a leg over the railing. And as she was throwing a leg over the railing, I noticed that her, pilot chute um it was just mesh and cap sticking out of the bc and um uh, uh, uh yeah and i noticed it but it was like it was literally like a half a second where she went from throwing a leg over and seeing the mesh and the cap to both legs standing on the concrete holding onto the railings and starting the count and i mean there was like zero hesitation from when her feet hit the concrete two, three, two, one. And I, I remember thinking to myself, like, like it was like this very strange sort of urge to be like, wait, 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 wait. But at the same time, um, it's this internal struggle or argument. And I'm not sure whether or not, um, I did the right thing or not, but I mean, it all happened so fast and she jumped, her pilot chute had a snag. Um, as she pulled it out, it came out all mesh first. It ended up snagging on a, a zipper on her saddlebag. She did clear that, and it ripped a pretty decent-sized hole in the mesh, and the, the pilot chute did inflate and extend six or eight feet. 
but then the bridle was trapped and she went all the way to the water and um, couldn't clear it and unfortunately lost her life. And the, um, the, the, from like analyzing the accident, what had happened was she had dynamic corners that were stiff. And at least this is what we think um, that she tucked her bridle and then tucked the corners in. So the corners were tucked around the top of the bridle. So when she deployed her pilot or yeah, her, um, when she deployed her, her PC, the, the bridle was sort of, uh, wrapped 90 around a, a stiff corner and, um, it never cleared. And that, that, you know, that was a pretty profound experience for me because it kind of came to this, um, this sort of, uh, cross this line in the sand where like, when do you say something? Well, I mean, for me, um, as obnoxious as it would have been to grab her by the arm and be like, wait, 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 something just doesn't feel right to me right now. You need to stop and let's make this a good successful jump. And if I would have done that, maybe she would have, you know, been alive today. And, you know, obviously we can't blame ourselves or kick ourselves or whatever, but in, um, a hesitation of saying something in a matter of five seconds in life, um, that could have made a difference. And, you know, it's, this isn't about like reckoning or like taking responsibility for that episode, but it is an example of when I think, um, we as jumpers need to take on uh, a little bit of responsibility to our fellow jumpers. And even if, um, it equals, you know, um, an interruption in confidence, we need to not left thing, leave things unsaid when there's concerns because the result is pretty, pretty profound, right? Like someone can die. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's so strange that in different communities, they treat that totally different. Like you walk up onto the bridge, if you're going to trust your emotions in that situation and call that out and grab that person, right, then that means that you're going to be doing that for many other people that may not have anything wrong, right? And how they treat that interaction is generally very poorly. Like, it's like, yo, dude, this is my thing. Okay. Don't touch me. Don't talk to me. And there are many people that would have been saved if we approached this as a bit more of like a team experience. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I gotta, I gotta admit, um, The, it, everything happened so fast in that one, um, that, that example that I gave. And it's like, I, I don't want to make it seem like, um, you know, I saw something wrong and ignored it because it, it, I didn't, it just was like, man, it was just so hectic. The whole thing was just so hectic. But at the same time, it was, um, you know, it's a point of reflection that, you know, again, it's, it's like super, super, super important to look in the mirror and to say, what can we do to, um, to be good human beings? <laughs> and if we're going to choose to do this and we're going to choose to do it because it enables us to live our lives in a way that, um, that is our truest and best, best path and allows us to give the best of ourselves to the people we love most. And we feel strongly that the benefits of, of doing this amazing thing, um, isn't, uh, you know, trivial, then, I think it's important for us to also um, uh, uh, be supportive of, of the safety of others. You know, right. Without... And that's, that's why, okay, so here's another thing that's kind of strange. We go out in Montana in the mountains, right? And we've got climbing gear in our pack. 
all of a sudden this becomes an exercise in group decision making. Now we, we take the climbing gear out of our pack and we put a parachute in our pack. All of a sudden it's every man for himself. I don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and again, um, like I was saying earlier, I think it's not, it's not so much that I feel like it's every man for himself, but I do feel like, um, if each of us takes the responsibility, uh, where we're making decisions, um, you know, with consideration to the other people that are with us, then, you know, in other words, it's not, I, I wouldn't rely on someone else to, to tell me, I would always try and make a conservative decision based on the fact that other people will be affected. So I'm still making a personal decision. Um, but the, my consideration includes other people as opposed to depending on, you know, there it's two different things, right? Like I'm not going out there thinking that this is just my experience and hoping that other people will help me if I have a problem. I'm, um, making the decision for myself and considering that the outcome is going to affect everybody else, uh, as well as myself. And, um, so that enables those decisions to maybe be made on the conservative side of the line, as opposed to, um, you know, like I said before, hoping for the best or, or just doing things at all costs because it's a benefit to me as a individual. Yeah, I think that um, if we zoom out a little bit and look at activities where you're relying on your group, like climbing, and the deeper you go into the backcountry, whether it's, you know, skiing or climbing or just even hiking, there is a sense of reliance on the people you're with. And then zooming into objects like the Prine that, you know, become more like a water slide than an, you know, than uh, an adventure. It becomes more and more individual in a way. I'm not saying that it should be or not, but when like the three of us, we all have experience in deep in the backcountry, and we know that that sense of reliance on our team. And I don't think that everybody comes to this sport with that same experience. Like, you know, skydiving is generally the biggest door into base jumping where, you know, someone you pay teaches you how to jump out and there's somebody at the front of the aircraft who hits a button that turns on the light that tells you what to do and so on and so forth. So this problem solving, reliance piece you're just not going to get that from skydive. I don't think I could be wrong, yeah. but it just, you need to come at it from a different angle. No, I, I would agree. I think, um, skydiving is obviously a essential and important, um, skill set to ready you for base jumping, but it's a, a percentage and there's other percentages involved that are, um, every bit as important, if not more important, um, risk mitigation, uh, you know, knowledge about the mountains. And, and like we said before, Micromet and, um, just some, um, the ability to self-reflect. I think a lot of those things that come from, um, you know, the, the times that you've perhaps gotten yourself in over your head and, um, and learned, uh, 
inexpensive but tough lesson i think those things matter a lot when they when they really need to and i would argue that um and this is certainly no i'm not like looking down the end of my nose at people who are uh, really passionate about skydiving i think again it's it's an essential skill set but i think uh when was the last time you went into a plane and um you know suffered in any way or decided that um that you were going to do something that didn't end up working out the way that you wanted it to. And I, I'm not talking about a cutaway or, or, you know, I'm, I'm saying like, it's not the same experience as, um, like get, getting yourself into a, a pretty tough situation and then having to learn the lessons that come from getting yourself out of it. Like, um, being benighted, you know, going up high on a route or something and, and having to spend the night on shivering on a ledge or, um, or getting yourself up something and trying to figure out how to get yourself back down. I, I think a lot of those are directly applicable to base jumps and, um, and certainly the, the navigation to get yourself to the correct exit and to, um, be firmly aware of what it is that you're about to do, um, without being task saturated or overwhelmed. Um, you know, sensory overloads a real thing. So, um, having that previous experience is like, I remember going and doing a wingsuit base jump, uh, trip with a bunch of like really, really good jumpers. And one guy showed up that wasn't very experienced. And when we got to this exit point that we had literally opened two days prior, um, he, he just like suited up and was like ready to jump behind us without a word. I mean, he didn't like, he didn't crawl to the edge and look down for himself. He didn't like ask about what direction he was just going to blindly follow us off this cliff, you know? And, um, and he was a skydiver that, that hadn't had any mountain experience and was just sort of like walking towards the door of the plane. And I, I think that, uh, from my climbing related experience, um, I just have been caught with my pants down enough that I, I would, always crawl up to the edge and look over and see where the ledges are, see where the obstructions are, see which angle I needed to jump at, see if what my eyes were, were, um, seeing was acceptable to my limits and my level of experience. Um, you know, that comes from getting my ass kicked a bunch, you know, from failing way more than I've succeeded in the mountains. So those lessons I, I would, uh, certainly have aided in, um, keeping, keeping me out of trouble. Um, and uh and i found to be useful so do you think there's uh too much facilitation going on in the current base jumping culture man that's a tough one i am so uh i have so much respect for guys like juma and um and miles and you know scotty and the people who are passing on this amazing uh amount of knowledge that was earned you know like I have so much respect for the, those that are willing to do that and to teach these courses and to get jumpers on the right foot. Um, but I do think that, um, I think that those courses are a benefit, uh, as, a um, in addition to some mentoring, um, some, you know, middle of the night, anytime, anywhere mentoring, like, being able to have, um, your, and I know like Scotty in particular, he tells most of his, um, students that really even more important than our influence are, is going to be the influence of your peers, you know, the people that you jump with. And, 
um, that obviously also comes from experience. So the people that you jump with and the, that, that one-on-one mentorship that someone has kind of, um, has decided that they're willing to give and to take the responsibility to give, uh, another human, um, as much as they can to, to, uh, you know, um, promote success in base jumping. Uh, I think that that's still pretty important. I think I wish that there was more of that. And maybe there is, maybe I, I'm just not seeing it as sort of predominantly as, as we used to, you know, when, when I got into base jumping there, like I said before, there was a couple of courses, but there was really no such thing. I mean, if you wanted to learn how to base jump, you, you kind of had to like do the things, don't cut any corners, earn the trust of someone that you drive with. And then, um, you know, humbly, ask through whatever ground crewing or just friendship that if they were willing to help you along in your progression. And, um, I, I, I think that there's still so much value in that. I think that the courses are great, but they shouldn't be, um, they shouldn't be isolated in someone's education as, as someone's education. So as we zoom out on this conversation and get to some more conceptual things, we've covered a lot of ground. Is uh, there anything that you want to dive back into or uh, jump to uh, as we kind of close this out? No, it's been kind of an interesting conversation for sure. I, uh, no, I, I always love hearing your guys' perspectives on things, and um, I don't foresee... Uh, what, what I what I think is really cool about um, base jumping today, what I'm seeing today is that it seems like the amount of information, the amount of progress made in the equipment and, um, you know, the accountability that people are sort of keeping other jumpers, um, you know, it's, it's just I, I'm seeing more and more posts of experienced jumpers reminding other jumpers that they need to remember the fundamentals. And, and I, th- I think... Um, that that is still, uh, I, I think that that sharing those, those kinds of things is, is hopefully keeping, um, keeping the progression in gear and the, the more commonality of, of jumping technical objects, um, exactly in the category that it should be, which is where it's always been, right? Like, um, you know, risk is a funny thing. It's like, you know, whether you're a beginner or uh, an expert, the risk never changes, right? It's always the same for everybody. Um, it's just how we react to it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. I got an interesting follow-up for that. You know, as we look at our community and how we are, uh, now, you know, sharing information and knowledge, um, do you think we are far off from being uh, a culture like mountaineering and climbing? And, uh, if not, why not? And if so, are we, you know, doing the right things to move in those directions to be a little bit more um, of a team when it comes to group education? I mean, I, <clears throat> I think that there are aspects of alpinism and, um, you know, m- maybe ways that you could fly a paraglider or hang glider or do other things that are uh, perhaps approaching the consequence of base jumping, but I don't think that you can compare anything to base jumping that way just because, um, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong. I, uh, the way I view it is, is if you look in, especially in aviation, right there, there is typically a chain of events that has to happen for something to end in 
you know, to be catastrophic at least. And, um, and if you were to remove any link in that chain, the accident usually wouldn't occur. Whereas in base jumping, that chain is it's usually like one link, you know, you make one decision and, and sometimes that decision can be the end of it. And, um, so I think base jumping is really unique that way. Um, you have to hold yourself to a little bit higher, uh, level of accountability, but, um, and I, and I also think that, uh, it's, if you were to fly a paraglider, right, you can choose for it to be what it is. In other words, flying a, hiking up a mountain in calm conditions and flying your paraglider back to the car is safer than alpine skiing. Um, but you could also fly a paraglider in July in the Owens and, um, have it be nuclear and, and certainly, uh, pretty dangerous, right? But it's your choice. And climbing's the same way. You can go out and clip bolts and take whippers all day and have it be no big deal. Or you can go and, you know, climb overhanging ice with a 40 pound pack on at 25,000 feet in the Himalayas with no gear. And it can be pretty on you, right? Um, base jumping, it's kind of that way. It's 514 from the very get-go. The second that you decide to jump off something, whether you have the skill or not, it's, it's on you, you know? You have to do things correctly. And, you know, it's easy right until it's not, right? So... I think base jumping is always going to be unique that way. Um, there, there's something interesting too there too, uh, as well as like your personal risk because if you go in base jumping, I would say 99.99% of the time you fucked up where, and it's all on you. Whereas in the mountains in alpinism, particularly Man, you have some Serac fall. You there's an avalanche. You know, just yeah. rock fall, whatever. You know, you're subjected to the elements, and that goes for alpine skiing as well. And um, you know, I mean, living where I live uh, near Chamonix and paying attention to what's going on in that valley on a regular basis, there's a lot of death that goes on. Where yeah, maybe it was a link in the chain, but. Sometimes it just like something happens and the mountain grabs you. Yeah. Objective and subjective hazard. Um, you know, certainly objective hazard in the mountains is real. And, um, and, and I would argue that in, you know, in base jumping, there's definitely objective hazard, but, but you're right. The large majority of fatalities are uh, pilot error and not from rock fall or from an avalanche or something else. I mean, that, that kind of thing can happen, but, um, I would agree with you, uh, but, but again, you know, risk is a funny thing, right? It's like, it's so personal. Like, um, who's to say that what's risky for one person is risky for everybody, right? Like a shorter exit for Will Mitchell or for Scotty Bob is not so, um, is, is, would be impossible for someone who didn't have the experience, right? Um, if, if I was climbing something that was like a, you know, detached overhanging icicle and I felt like I knew the medium, I had the experience and, um, I knew the, the environment that I was climbing in, um, that might feel like a reasonable decision to me. Whereas somebody who was just learning how to ice climb would think that that was, you know, um, a, a really, really, really poor choice. Right. So the, the, definition of risk and what's too risky is personal and it's um, directly proportional to the person making the decision. Now that becomes also subjective, right? Subjective personally to that, that individual who's making that decision might feel up for it one day and not up, not up for it another day. Right. 
um, maybe they're physically capable of it one day and not physically capable of it the other another day. But again, that sort of plays into the level of consequence that is involved with base jumping. And I would argue that for me, if the answer wasn't, if I didn't believe with a hundred percent certainty, even though, you know, nothing's ever a hundred percent, if I didn't believe that I wasn't, that, that I was going to be successful, then I wouldn't do it, you know? Um, just because again, you know, I can always jump tomorrow, but if I can't, if I'm hurt or dead. So, um, making that decision and, uh, the other one that I've been trying to utilize myself a lot lately, especially with paragliding and um, flying bush planes, is um, I feel like it's important for me when it comes to these high risk sort of, especially aviation oriented activities, to always fly like or jump like the the person I am and not like the person I want to be. Um, that's super important because you know one of the things that um, I get asked quite a bit. Um, is why is it that a lot of climbers end up, you know, the climber jumpers end up having accidents. And I think, um, when I started to really like, like, uh, carefully and sort of without bias, look in the mirror at myself, what I realized was that for me, climbing was all about pushing past my limits. It was all always about falling off. Like it's not, you know, I go climbing to do something that's harder than I can do, right? Because the idea is to get stronger, to get better, to um, to find out where that line is, to push past it, to fall off, and then to try and get past that line. That's where the benefit of it is, in it, certainly in certain types of climbing. Um, and you can't do that in a base jump. Like, you just can't, right? And so um, instead of, like, the other activities in my life where I would push uh, hard enough that I would end up making a mistake and then learn from that mistake in aviation. And certainly in base jumping, you, you, that's a line that you can never cross. So, um, so you have to make decisions within a realm that you feel like you're going to be successful and not push past that point. Well, then, you know, that mentality is, well, how am I ever going to learn or get better? And the, the truth is, is every time you do something, clearly you're learning, clearly you're getting better. And it's because in aviation and in base jumping, it's only like 20% talent and skill and 80% experience, right? That's going to keep you alive at the end of the year. So, um, every time you do it, you're gaining experience. Even if you don't do it, when you go to the exit and you decide that you don't jump, you've arguably gained more than you did if you would have jumped. Right. And, um, and I think that if you jump like the jumper you are, as opposed to the jumper you want to be, then the mistakes that you're, that are inevitable because we're humans are going to stay inexpensive. And if you jump, like you, you know, if you're flying a wingsuit, like you want, you know, you like, I want to be, I want to fly a wingsuit like low, well, if I do that, I'm not going to last very long, you know? So whether or not it's arguable that I would get better quick, um, that's probably true to a point, but at some point I'm going to jump like Lowe and not have the skills that Lowe has. And that's going to end up, um, being a problem for me. You know? Yeah. In an instant gratification world, it's important for us to remind ourselves that base jumping is not a sprint race. It's a marathon. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the song, right? It's like, I don't listen to music to hear the end of it. I, I listen to music to listen to the music. Right. So instead of like wanting to be the best base jumper, I just enjoy the process of becoming a better base jumper than I was. And which, you know, comes back to comparison and all these other things. So 
and just being real and, and then, you know, bringing it all back full circle, being not only real with yourself, but, um, having the courage to be real with your, with your chosen jumping partners and, um, keeping each other out of, out of harm's way by having the, the tough conversations and, um, challenging each other in a respectful way, uh, to make sure that we're honest within ourselves and we can make our own personal decisions um, responsibly and with other people uh, in consideration, you know? So if I can ask you for one last piece of advice uh, to end on, um, and it's uh, related to jumping like the jumper that you are, do you have any tips and tricks or some kind of way that you can maintain that kind of self-awareness that's necessary to jump like that person? Um, I mean, man, it all comes down to love for me. Just love life, be grateful for what you have, um, be grateful for the people that you're with, um, try and always have a beginner's mind and learn from everybody. And, um, if you, uh, are that grateful and you love that hard, then you can't not look in the mirror and care about the people you're with, you know? And, um, I, I mean, I just want to have the best life experience that I can and to try and give those, these, like these, um, you know, the, the emotional response or the lessons that I've learned or however you want to say it from those, those tougher experiences that have left an impact on me. I want to give those to the people who, who, you know, don't have them yet, or at least give them something to consider so that hopefully they can, um, gain perspective without having to make a mistake to get it. And you know, that, that in itself is an interesting topic, right? Because, um, I can tell my kid that the handle on the pot is hot, uh, 20 times, but until she touches it and she's not going to remember it, you know? So we do have to have this like visceral connection with a lesson before it actually sticks, I think as human beings. But I do think that, um, when you do, when you, when you really genuinely show your love for someone and you look them in the eye and have a conversation and they can feel that, um, that, that, that's, that can be a visceral connection enough. You know, they can, they can say, Oh, this, I need to pay attention right now because, um, looking in the whites of my friend's eyes that is giving so passionately this opinion or this perspective, um, it, it should be something that is, you know, to pay to, to be paid attention to. So, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, sounds like, you know, dude, that, that was great. And, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of the knowledge and experience that you've gained over all of these years. I think that we could delve into any of these topics for another two hours that you've touched on and maybe we're going to have to bring you back 10 times, but Hey, we're here for it. Jeff, thanks. This uh, session certainly didn't disappoint. And, uh, like Matt said, thanks for uh, spending the time with us and dropping all this knowledge on the track for us. Yeah. Again, you guys, thanks so much. I, it's like, like I said, it's a huge honor and, um, I have so much respect for you guys and, and for everybody in the base jump community and all the eclectic communities that I've been involved with over the years, whether it's falconry or flying hang gliders or paragliders or bush planes or climbing or whatever. Um, I've never been a part of a community that had uh, more passion and more love for each other, uh, than the misfits that we all know as base jumpers. And, um, I'm just so grateful for everybody out there. I, I, I love everybody uh, that I've gotten to jump with and, and the impact that base jumping has made on my life. It's, I've certainly experienced things that I would never trade um, or change for the fear of changing everything, you know? Absolutely.
Well said. With that, thank you. And and you know we're going to need to have you on again. So uh, what we'll just say until next time. Yeah, All right. Until perfect. next time. Yeah, looking forward to it already. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Big shout out to Mark Stockwell for editing this episode. And if you know anyone that wants to be on the podcast or you yourself have something to add or share on the podcast, please hit us up.